Philosophy Friday! Welcome, everybody. We're here. We're back. Took a week off. I was in, in LA, moving and shaking, doing deals, partying it up, hanging with dope people. You guys know how it is. <laughs> anyway, we no, have. Not really. No. <laughs> COVID is still a thing. So. The, wrong, <laughs> the wrong people to be talking about that. Anyway, we. If by dope people you mean my, my five year old son, then yes. <laughs> Yeah, of course, of course. Awesome. Making deals, making deals. <laughs> so for the audience, we have a special guest joining us today to talk about product management, a topic we actually get a ton of requests for. And the topic for today is going to focus on approaches for planning and how to do prioritization for development. And so joining us, our special guest is Adam Telfer, who is Senior Director of Product and Head of Central Product at WB Games. Welcome, Adam. And before we jump in, it'd be great if you can say a few words in terms of who you are and your background. Um, yeah, it's, um, I've been around in, in mobile free-to-play since 2009. Um, before that, I was a console dev for EA. And before that, I was actually an indie. That was kind of a weird thing. Uh, I was an indie for about 10 years making Flash games. For sites like Newgrounds, and that's kind of where I got my start. Um, and I've always been in like straddling between being like a systems designer and a PM, um, because most of the time, like I'd be joining a pretty small indie team, and I'd be the only one that wanted to do that work or was capable of doing the work. Um, everybody else wanted to do the balance or do the, the say like focus on graphics and gameplay. I was always focusing more on, on balancing. Um, but yeah, and then eventually I transitioned to game lead at Wooga for about four and a half years where I actually learned how to do free to play properly. Um, and then was a consultant for uh, two years um, while I was kind of um, building up a startup in Berlin. And then now I'm actually at WB where I'm touching product strategy across the portfolio. So coming actually full circle back to PC, console, mobile. So it's good. Um, but yeah, for the last five years, I've been doing also Deconstructor Fun and ranting on the podcast. So. Nice. Fun. And just for usual corporate stuff, yes, I am employed by WB, but my opinions today are my own, uh, not Warner Brothers. It's all good. All right. Cool. So maybe jumping right in, I thought we could start by talking about the different kinds of planning. And I know, Adam, you're probably looking at stuff not only from a product or studio basis, but from a portfolio perspective. But maybe we could start with the studio side and then just talk about, again, what are, if you were to categorize high level, what the different kinds of planning are that you would typically see for a game or a studio, what would that look like? And Adam, if you want to jump in with some of your initial thoughts. Sure. So um, I'm assuming we're talking mainly like planning is such a broad topic. Mm -hmm. you, you touched on in terms of like portfolio planning as a, a larger publisher versus um, a studio um, trying to plan out all the different games that it's working on versus at a game mm -hmm. level. Um, so what I probably do is, is just to not talk your ears off for the next two hours. Um, really like planning breaks down into different stages of, of development, whether you're in that early, say concepting phase, um, prototyping your game, um, doing reproduction, production, and then live. Um, so I think the most interesting and philosophical, um, stage that I think we can talk about today is really focusing on concept stage. Uh, since that's really where it sets the foundations for your entire pre-launch uh, production and where I think a lot of PMs fall down. Um, so really 
just to also then step back and confirm what a PM does and is expected to do pre-launch versus say a producer or a game designer. Um, my perspective is that a PM is say the owner of the product strategy. So producers, game designers are focused on executing on a product strategy, ensuring that the game that they're making is hard, hitting say a target opportunity. But a product manager's role is then to ensure that what they are aiming at is actually viable and gives the highest chance of success. Like, I think that's my general philosophy about the, the distinguishing nature between those and what product strategy really is. Um, and of course, every studio is different, different roles blend with that, but generally that's what product strategy is. So the best PMs during pre-launch, especially during that concept phase, are ones that can continually think holistically about the market um, and understands the deep reasons for why a game would ever succeed and react to insights, say internal from internal feedback sources or um, externally. So things like consultants, things like uh, market data, um, things like playing games and, and translating those learnings, right? And ensure that the target that the team is aimed at is then viable and then communicating that vision or that, that target effectively to the entire team. Um, so with that metaphor, I would say product strategy is the critical part to understand really planning in the early stages and making sure that this is well-researched and it's understood by the entire team, but also flexible and that over time it gets clearer and more precise. Um, so then planning all starts with the product strategy or this thesis um, and really then breaking down from there. So for example, if we took a thesis like for um, Everdale uh, by Supercell, um, you could assume that the thesis would be something along the lines of this. The, the way for, um, say, invest in express games like Heyday to reach a new tier of success is to build around truly social, almost 4X-like endgame. That the theme fantasy of you know running your farm, um, building up your little village will retain the downloads interest and CPI, but the focus on say guilds and trading and cooperative goals will drive retention and monetization higher than the genre. That could have been the thesis that uh, say Supercell came up with. So taking that thesis, then the PM's job is to start breaking that out into what must be right for this to be true. And I think that's really what sets the foundation of then the entire production and what validation the PM has to be doing through all the stages of, the de of development. And the interesting thing is, right, like validation does not necessarily just come in prototyping and production. Um, it also comes validation through competitive research, say through the onset of the project, bringing on external consultants and challenging your vision, um, as well as, you know, production. So prototype in hand, or also just saying that certain risks or certain assumptions apart that part of that thesis just cannot be validated until the game launches. And the team, of course, accepts that risk. Um, that's generally how I assume of planning during that concept phase is build up that thesis, well-researched, communicated to the team, and then broken apart. Um, so that then all future stages start working towards that. Got it. And it seems like, I, I think I agree with you, Adam, in the way that you kind of characterizes, characterize different stages of planning, but I probably take a little bit of a simpler approach in terms of the, the early phases, what you're calling concept, prototyping, and pre-production. I kind of roll up into like a single stage of pre-production where it would be about to your point, like trying to prove out a thesis or the way that I kind of approach it is more around key risks. So for this idea that we have, what are the key risks? Is it is it new gameplay? Is it 
the adoption of a monetization mechanic by an audience? Is it, you know, the a new kind of art style? And and so for me, when I think about the planning part in terms of the pre-production, it it would be around trying to figure out how to characterize and then try to mitigate a lot of those things that happen. Uh, a lot of a lot of the risks that that we identify early on in, in in the game project, and then I think that the other kind of complicating factor, as far as planning and concept, is that it also to speak about a theme that Brett and I have talked a lot about in the past in terms of situational context is that, you know, what kind of game are we developing, right? So, for example, I would differentiate games based upon like the world we come from, which is more free to play mobile that are more systems oriented and where, and if you're, let's say, or if you're doing a game that's based upon like you're fast following an existing game, then that's a little bit more science, less, um, less risk in terms of like the gameplay sort of finding the fun. Whereas if you're trying to create new gameplay, then the planning for that and, and the way that you would try to characterize that to me is a lot different from if it's more systems, more, you know, fast follow versus something new. But, um, you know, I think the other tricky part of planning just has to do with, you know, we've spoken about Peter Thiel before in the past, but sometimes the biggest and the best ideas are the ones that are what Peter Thiel calls a secret, meaning everyone else thinks this is a dumb idea, but through someone's insight or some artist's intuition, we know that, or that person knows that if we were to launch this kind of product in the market, that it would actually be big. And so then that would, you know, that kind of intuition and insight would generally contradict the natural feelings of an MBA who's like, well, show me the proof in in, in the data from the uh, from the app Annie data that shows me that this thing is going to be a hit or not. So anyway, those are some of the things that I think about. But um, I would I would say that like I I really feel that the key risk based approach is in my opinion the best way to go. And I would also recommend that a lot of folks in our audience check out. There was a Gamma Sutra post many years ago on a research project called the Games Outcomes. Uh, games outcomes project where they looked at a lot of different characteristics of different games and then they looked at the outcomes. Was it successful? Was it not? And um, the one of the high level takeaways was that you know studios should be oriented more around the key risks. What are the biggest risks? And then trying to mitigate those first and not not like waiting until later. But I don't know, Brett, do you have any any other thoughts before we move on? Yeah, well. I'm just glad we're 11 minutes in and you already crapped on MBAs. So take that off the box, <laughs> yeah. JK. Good work. <laughs> As a quasi MBA myself, I appreciate it. Uh, I only got I only, <laughs> I went to Dharma's business school, but I I left after my first year to join Zynga. Anyways, uh, I a couple of things. I mean, well, one, I uh, Adam, I had a question for you because I when you were talking about stuff. Uh, one thing you said was to support your hypothesis. Well, one, I love the hypothesis. I, I, I think that's great to align the product and other teams, right? And I think that's what 
a, a lot of game companies struggle with is the product team will think of this really cool product and then they'll go off and they'll say, oh, marketing team, like make this work. And without having a strategy, it's very hard to align those teams. So that strategy really helps to say, okay, our strategy is this. And then because of that strategy, we have a thesis. One question I had to you and one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is you said, then you go get data to support your thesis. And one cool framework I love to use is analysis of competing hypotheses. And I don't think we've talked about this here, but the FBI created it to basically figure out how to solve uh, very difficult questions or trying to answer difficult questions. And one thing that they learned is there's a lot of bias to going to get data to support your opinion. It's like you have yeah. a you have a bias to the seeing data that supports it. So what they would do is build a matrix of different hypotheses and then try to basically disprove them and then weaken the hypotheses. And then the strongest one would then surface. And I think that in addition to your process, you may want to implement something where it's trying to disprove the hypotheses before you go into the, what I would probably call the road mapping stage, right? Or the planning stage where you're going to go build something. Cause I, I, I look at it as product strategy. So I agree there. Then there's sort of the what you would probably call the hypothesis building stage, hypothesis testing stage, and then there's the road mapping, and then there's the individual feature execution um, stage. So um, uh, that's a great point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're we're if you start from a point of this is our thesis, let's go prove it uh, with data, and especially when say competitive intelligence data is very correlative, right? Nothing is causal. You can look at a spike of data and say, that's the thing I want it to be, rather than it being, um, say, actually caused by that and coming up with the wrong takeaways. Um, absolutely. But I still think, um, like, coming back to, to uh, JK, your approach and my approach, it sounds like we're roughly similar, where yep. you have it, you have a, a idea of, of what you're trying to do, right? That drives your design pillars in your game. Mm -hmm. um, then you have key risks, or a thesis that's broken down into what must go right. Um, and you're kind of saying, well, you need to make sure that there's room for um, the Peter Thiel secrets, right? Of let's say the uh, Royal match team, um, X-Peak, they, they clearly had a ton of insights on the match three yeah. marketplace and said, you know what, fuck it. We're going to build this thing yeah. anyways. We're going to go after <laughs> the biggest players in the space. Right, and we think we know based on core gameplay innovation, right. uh, based on polish, um, and I'm assuming they had things in their back pocket from what they saw at peak to to support that theory. Right, right. it wasn't just something pulled out of an ass. It was no, we we've we've run these things, we've we've built enough of these games to say these things are important. Right, uh, which of course supports that when you're looking at startups, that you're you're picking people that have worked on successful games, but also that um, part of that key thesis needs to include that. And I think it's always interesting looking at like different teams and how they look at theses. And yeah, you'll always have that that um, that thing of you break it out and you start to say, okay, we're going to go after this player, um, where one person say like say you're going after like World of Warcraft, right? There's a whole thing of everyone assuming World of Warcraft is number one. No one will ever beat World of Warcraft. And then you have another team coming at them and saying, look, we actually understand very deeply why World of Warcraft works. We're going to go after them and try to beat them. Um, right. a, somebody who's at a surface level in that genre will probably dismiss the whole thing. Right? We'll just say, yeah. no, there's no fucking way you can win in, in, in MMO. You're going up against Blizzard. And then there's that team that says, actually, we have a deeper understanding. 
there will always be a conflict with surface level understanding and deeper understanding people. Yeah, I, I agree. And maybe a couple other points in terms of the concept phase, Brett, to your point on like different tools you could use. Uh, so one of the things that we, we also think about when it comes to key risks in that concept phase is to use a logic tree. So, and you know, for, for any of the NBAs or ex-McKinsey folks out there, that they'll be familiar with the use of logic trees. But like, so there, there, there are some good things from, from getting an MBA, but like, yeah, I think it's a useful exercise to just characterize, you know, some of the risks and then try to try to hone in on what the specific things that you could try to prove or disprove or test to see if it works or not. And the one other thing that I would actually advise folks to think about in the concept phase has to do with kind of a theory that, um, Brett, I think we might've touched upon it before is, but it has to do with um, a, a theory that I have around games as a manifestation of human latent desires. So I believe that the reason why people play games is basically to engage in a certain emotion or or because of some desire that they have, right? And so like maybe our, our you know, maybe there's a desire back from our ancient ancestry to dominate, conquer land, to like do, do certain things. And so that gets manifested when, you know, you're playing like King of Avalon or Game of War or like, if there, you know, if you have a lot going on in your life and you want to show progress, and it's hard to see any progress in your life, but in Royal Match, you're now at level 500, and you can see that progress and like, like lights and and like positive reinforcement um, happen. Then I I think that like the other way to think about some of these games would be to try to understand: is there a latent human desire that you're tapping into? And if you do, if you're doing that, how can you potentially magnify that desire that you're tapping into or satisfying for your user base? But just just another another way that we kind of have a diff, have Indian, like an additional lens on how to evaluate and think about games in the concept phase. Interesting. I mean, in terms of the innovation, I just want one thing I wanted to add to this. Yeah. The way that I would think about it is that I would break the game up into different components. And then I would apply a risk, a risk number or a risk valuation to the different components of it. And then I would basically based on that risk and that I would look at the upside, right? I mean, some of the cases that we're talking about, if, if they believe, if I believe that I'm building a game and it's, I'm going after a certain audience and I have a hypothesis that they, this audience secretly desires to conquer, right? They've been doing match three and now they want to conquer whatever they want to conquer castles that is my sort of thesis and when i lay out the different components of the game i want to put my risk component and my innovation component in that thesis statement and i think sometimes what i see when i work with game teams is they just want to innovate to innovate so they'll be putting innovation in the new user experience they'll be putting innovation in the what the live ops system and innovation over here and here and it doesn't align with their thesis statement and so all those innovations are taking on a lot of risk and they may have hit the thesis statement but because they took all this risk in these other areas those are bogging them down where they they don't even have let's say retention in the first three days to get even players to this really awesome core meta that they've created that does fit the thesis and i think that 
going through your game and outlining the different components of it and being very upfront with this is our thesis and this is where we're going to innovate on. And this is also where we're going to spend the majority of our time and focus and testing and design and iteration. And these other things we aren't going to is a great way to do it. And I, and I know what you're thinking, JK, because at the top level, I think all of the, when you think about those, how much risk you want to take into those different components, that's based on the strategy of the company, right? If you're at a big public company, they're not going to want to take risk in all those components because the market's going to get really upset at them and they're going to have a, if it doesn't hit. So they're going to want to go, okay, well, one out of eight of those, we're going to take that risk. If you're a startup like you are, JK, you might want to be taking six out of the eight or six out of the 10 and go, we're going to innovate. Because, But if you do, the key component of it is if you take that risk, if it hits, it has to have a multiple on the results. And that's also something that I see where people take a risk on something where they take a risk on, let's say, the push notifications or something. It's like, dude, if the push notifications hit, it's not going to change your game. You're going to get like a 5% maybe lift on engagement. So why are you taking the risk there? And so you also have to look at it in the context of what's the value it's adding there. So that's something I, I don't think people do enough is like explicitly labeling something. This is where we're going to innovate and this is where we're not. And that's totally okay too. You know, like the, you don't have to be innovative in everything to make an innovative game. Absolutely. And I think um, the thing that I always see um with designers breaking down their thesis, like you, you pointed at like push notifications not being enough. I see a lot with designers pointing towards onboarding and UI UX as the thing they're going to focus on, which is not for live services, right? Like if we look at the graph of retention for live services, if you're focusing all on those D1, all you're doing is converting more dabblers and certain instead of actually trying to retain a core audience. So yeah, that, that thesis has to be powerful. And it can't be aligned with with surface level improvements. Um, and I think in terms of mapping it to key risks, the best way to do it is actually to start doing playtests, like using playtest cloud and these types of things with focused tests around that innovation, because then you actually see real player reactions to these things rather than where I've seen things fall down where you do very focused or very biased market research, um, or you do say biased competitive analysis. Right, like if you're doing play tests and you're you're testing against your competitive, um, your your incumbent's audience, right, and they're actually saying, "Oh, I really like this part of this game. This feels different. I want to try this more." Those are all signals that your key risks are aligned in the right place. Okay, and then maybe just kind of so we're we're talking about the early early phase and and, and kind of pre production concept. So for this phase. Adam, in terms of like before you decide to like green light a project or go, in terms of planning or the types of analysis that you like to see, what what would you like how how much planning, how much analysis do you think is appropriate for this stage to make that decision about whether you kind of proceed or not? Um, so keep in mind, like I, I can only speak from myself like, yes. as a person. Yes. <laughs> um, not not WB, right? Yes. Like um, WB has their own um, opinions on these things. But from my perspective, the ideal um, for those concept green lights is that um, everybody is like, like you have that concept, you have that thesis, and you do a opportunity sizing based on that, right? Mm -hmm. 
you look at that, you say, we're going to X percentage above this game. It's very top-down, very comp-based, and I think that's absolutely fine. But then you still get a sense of this is the opportunity size that we're getting to. And if we do these things right, if these key risks are solved, this is the potential up there. And then you can even break that down and um, associate each one of those parts that we talked about that breakdown by risks. So you can say, this is if we get this right, this actually builds us towards a defensible position because we have this competitive advantage as a company. We believe that we take on this amount of risk. We get through this. It becomes very difficult for somebody to follow us. That, that's when you say, okay, this concept is aligned with a very strong product strategy. That's the ideal. Absolutely. Right. Brett, do you have any thoughts on, on that? I just want to double down on that because I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I think people don't want to look at the top down, look at things and it can be very eye opening when they just say, okay, this game, the top grossing game makes 10 million a year and your goal is 50, right? And you're building yeah. a game similar to this game. So what you're telling me is you're going to do five X this game. Is that what you're saying? And it's amazing how impactful just those kind of numbers can be. And I think some people kind of avoid it because they want to stay in the land of like design imagination, which is the fun, fun place. And it's like, okay, just now you have your hypothesis. Now tell me that the, the, the raw numbers, I know it's not a fun part of the process, but we need to do it. And that's, that's where I do think the PM kind of plays a serious role of just making sure that you're looking at those brass tax numbers and, and really believe, hey, yeah, we're going to make 5x what this game is, or we're going to take on five different games that make a billion dollars a year, and we're going to get 20%, right? And we believe in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between when you have a PM during that concept phase that's really, really structured in how they think about that phase right. versus a very creative team only designed and then a PM joins in late, um, or, or say the PM just isn't structured enough in their thoughts that you then get to a point where you're like, okay, a PM looks at the game in mid-production and says, okay, this is our winning hypothesis, right? They're, they're, sorry, this is our thesis for, for how we're going to win in the space, right? And then starts breaking up and starts realizing, okay, we're either not aligned to a large enough opportunity, right? Or the, the risks here have not been proven out. And then it becomes thinking in bets, right? Of do we really think the outcome here is going to be positive? It's right. a very difficult position for PMs to get into. Yeah. And I kind of agree that the, let's say the specific revenue revenue forecast or things of that nature, in my opinion, are, are not necessary at this phase, but I actually like to do it in the, not, not like a detailed model, but more in a back of the envelope hand wavy sense where, you know, you build essentially a, a, a sensitivity analysis around the in potential install volume relative to the, you know, amount of monetization that you can generate on a per player basis. And then you, you kind of then try to characterize for this game to achieve various levels of success, what would need to be true? What would need to be true from installs in terms of, you know, paid and organic and what would need to be true in terms of monetization. And generally I like to, um, to create something that I call a monetization contribution table that would show the different forms of monetization you have in the game and how much potentially you could make in terms of, of um, money from players in that game. And, and again, it's not the point of this exercise wouldn't be to be accurate. It would be to understand 
what needs to be true? What are the key assumptions that we're banking on for this game to perform at various levels of scale? And I would agree that this isn't like a practice, like you can have a creative come in and just say, and just have a strong belief that I know this product is going to be successful. It's a big problem. It will work out. But also for me, I, I like the practice of having this more disciplined and proactive level of thinking where you're really trying to understand what has to be true. And then you can then, you know, you, you, that it'll help inform some of the planning and, and, and how you can potentially uh, think about the game as you go into soft launch and as you, as you launch as well. Can you go into any more detail on that? I'd love to know exactly especially super early on. So if you could take um, the shooter space or, or something, yeah. and you can say, here's here's a breakdown that we see happening in, in a game in the space, and here's how that maps to um, like insights for the design team. Yeah, so for example, I think that one of the things you could do is let's say you are, uh, you, so you mentioned shooter. If you're, if you're making a shooter game, what I would do is to try and, without knowing the specific design, let's say, but if you're making a, a shooter game that's a battle royale, I mean, you've got all the data that you could use App Annie to collect data on the organic volume. You, they'll even give you a sense of how much is paid versus organic. So you have a notion of how well different battle royale games do in the market today. And then I think what you would want to do is to, um, based upon your specific vision of the game, you would then try to understand, well, how well could it do in comparison to those games? What would have to be true? And then also on the monetization side, you can, you know, uh, App Annie, Sensor Tower have revenue per data information. But if you're, let's say you're changing the monetization model, then you could say, well, actually our monetization is more similar to another game, 8-Ball Pool or some other game, then you can see how those games monetize and then you can either blend or you can modify your monetization based upon the RP curve of, let's say, a shooter versus the other type of monetization that you plan on using. And so then once you have a installs model, and again, when I say model, this is you know very hand-wavy, simple spreadsheet, and then once you have a monetization model in terms of like what your potential ARPU curve would look like, then that could, then you can basically run sensitivity against it to, to suggest what the potential revenue outcomes could be for the game. Does that make sense? So when you, yeah, yeah. But when you go for funding and you put this in front of VCs, do they just love this? They're like, oh my God, these guys have it like down to a science. They know exactly how much money they're going to make. Well, I would say this. They... I, I have a bunch of friends who have raised yeah. a lot more money than I have, and they don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I definitely don't think this is necessary. But I would say that, you know, for me coming from the free to play space, and I would say, in general, free-to-play guys are a little bit more analytically driven than, let's say, if I were coming from, you know, like if I were coming from Active Blizzard or Riot, I doubt you'd see this kind of analysis, and it would be more based upon the content and, and the kind of play that they're going for, right? But I think for, for like, if you're more systems-oriented, if you're coming from free to play, I would expect a little bit more analysis personally, just because that's kind of the world that we come from. 
So if you say I'm going after Battle Royale, so I'm going after Call of Duty Mobile or PUBG Mobile, they have their RPR curves obviously very low. So like a, a dollar, two dollar kind of one year, two year RPIs. Yep. And you're saying I'm going to go after it with a new monetization model. Are you just grafting the new RPI curve? onto those installs and then multiplying the two of them or well, you it would depend on like a right adjustment so, of each so so it depends like what what are you what are you doing uh if if let's say you have a monetization model that's more similar to a different game then i would probably try and take that rp curve and then adapt it and then generally speaking i would discount for risk in terms of the execution of that model uh, but that's what i would you know that again that gives you a rough sense of what you could do and you know that what assumptions are baked into that so let's if you were using let's say you were doing gotcha collection well you know what the gotcha collection rp curve looks like now applied to shooters you'd have to think about how that would fit you know are you having the full collection depth are you having a, a smaller collection depth and then you would discount appropriately both in terms of time, duration, monetization potential. But you could, in theory, you know, come up with a reasonable est of estimation of what your RP could, could look like based upon gotcha collection, as an example. And then, you know, and, and then based upon your assumptions in terms of installs, based upon the fact that you're coming in late, what the organics would potentially look like, what you could do from a paid perspective. And then that will give you a rough idea, a, a you know, rough sensitivity model for what you could potentially do under various scenarios of installs, various scenarios of monetization. Yeah, interesting. Um, because I, I definitely find when we're doing these types of top-down analyses, um, sometimes it's easy to graft downloads onto things, like shift downloads from another game yeah. and say we could recreate that same download curve. Yeah. But I find that type of analysis very, very flawed because downloads are typically a function of UA, which is a function of RPI, right? Like if, if you have a, a real advantage on the LTV side of the equation, you can drive a lot more downloads than you yeah. would otherwise, yeah. which and is why so, you typically start to look at the market. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. That, that should go into your contemplation in terms of assumptions for your model. And so uh, one of the things that you can, I mean, it's not perfect, but AppAnny actually using their data, you can kind of get a rough idea of organics relative to paid installs. And so if it's, if it's heavily organic, you don't have that issue. If it's heavily paid, you would have that issue. Interesting. Yep. Very interesting. All right. And by the way, on, on MBA stuff, um, funny story. So I don't have my yeah. MBA. I'm okay. a computer science guy. Um, so uh, I've started getting into business roles, obviously being a PM. So I bought a book, which is basically like the color picture book of getting an MBA. Okay. <laughs> it's like the most bare basics <laughs> MBA thing. Read that. Never had a problem with anybody coming up to me about business ever since I read my <laughs> my picture book MBA. So <laughs> what, what what is the book? What is the book recommendation? It's just called I'm visual MBA. It's it's a hundred thousand dollars a year. Some of these yeah. visual this MBA. Is like a, this is like a twenty dollar visual MBA. Yeah. Well, you right, know, for for the audience, rather than spending your hundreds of thousands on an MBA, you can buy yeah. that book. Um, 
Yeah, actually, I'm I'm generally a little negative. Using I mean, data I, tables, I was going to call out. I know I know you're a data table guy when you're mentioning sensitivity analysis. I just want as an MBA, half MBA here. Data tables are very powerful. I don't think they're used enough in mobile gaming, but they're yeah. really great for helping moving decisions along. And I think that's what an ex, a good Excel model can help do. And that's what I used to use it a lot as a product manager is when I would get in discussions with the team and I would put, you know, I present what I, what I was thinking would happen. Someone might debate with me and say, well, I don't believe we're going to get as many of those downloads or I don't believe our retention is going to be that great. And then if you have built a data table with different ranges of inputs, you yeah. can show them like, okay, great. Well, let's look at the output of the model based on your, your thoughts of the future, your perspective of what the retention is going to be. Okay, we're still positive there. Or, oh, wow, we're really negative there. That is a serious concern. And I think that's what really great PMs do is they don't, they, they sort of are like the psychiatrists of the team and they help everyone get to the decision that's the right decision using tools that they've created, like a spec, a strategy, uh, uh, Excel model, a data table. They And those aren't things that they just sat and created. They've you know, taking the inputs, but then they use those tools to say, okay, let me, let me explore your concern and let's figure out a way to either address it or alleviate it from being a concern anymore. And sensitivity analysis and data tables are very powerful tools in doing that. Right. Yeah. I I would just say that the one danger from a lot of the MBAs who I've worked with in the past is that <laughs> stop stop with the stop with the, the bucket throwing jk <laughs> so i gotta throw a little more shade now, I, I have an mba too i have an mba too but but just to throw a little bit of extra shade here is that like sometimes like hard knocks jk <laughs> like models are easily manipulated right and so like you know i i mean there are times when i've looked at models and I'm like okay guys you guys are really trying to green light this game right it's so obvious in the model where they, because, you know, they, like, I, I just think that models can be easily manipulated. So I, I would say like the, um, the tricky part. And so I completely agree with you, Brett, like for a disciplined PM who's not being influenced by political forces model data models all that is always better to have and to be able to have an honest discussion around a model is great but there there is always that danger of politicizing and weaponizing some of these models which i i hope people in our audience take to heart and don't do because i've seen it way too often <laughs> all right, right so but that that's the, the the dark side of planning anyway <laughs> all right so I, I thought we could shift over now into production and so when you think about production, guys, in, any thoughts here in terms of you know, in terms I feel of like we could have gone for another twenty minutes on that. <laughs> we can come yeah, back to it. Talking, we can, we'll, we'll come back. Like, we'll, we'll bring it back. <laughs> the dark side of Excel. The dark side of Excel modeling. It's always like a just negative fifty percent yeah. model. Yeah. Well, what <laughs> is it? Like hidden you can, in one you of can, the input cells. You can uh, you can build a house and you can kill somebody with a hammer. I mean. So it kind of depends well, there, on how there you buy it, right? Sorry, I have to yeah. let my cat so out. Good. Now, now we're off to a good start. Yeah. Now we can really talk about some stuff, Adam. <laughs> All right, production planning. Any thoughts in terms of you know how you build a a roadmap, a milestones, the the kind of planning that um, you guys generally would like to see for, let's say, now that kind of moving from pre-production concept into like 
the production planning. Any thoughts on planning there? Well, I was just going to reiterate that if you're building a roadmap, I, I do think that it's valuable to have uh, an you know estimated cost, uh, estimated impact, and a risk factor to that. I think as you look at your portfolio, and this is more for live games than it is for pre-production or in the sort of early stages. When you look at your portfolio of a roadmap, you want to think of yourself as sort of like a financial manager of a, of a portfolio, a financial portfolio. And on one end, you want to have your VC style risks, bets that are going to be these large multiples if they hit, but a high likelihood to, to fail. And then on the other end, you're going to want to have your safer bets that are going to have the modest lift in revenue if they hit, but more of like a 90% confidence that, that they're going to be successful. And that makeup of how risky you want that portfolio and how secure you want it should be directly related to the strategy of the company, right? Again, if you're a public company and you want to hit a quarterly goal of a 1% increase in revenue, then you want a safer portfolio. If you're a smaller company and you want to double your company's revenue, you're going to want to have a riskier portfolio. And the, and the, generally, the portfolio should just represent that strategy of the company at a high level. Um, so in, in terms of like real production planning, um, what types of questions were... What specifically are you trying to ask about that? Well, I mean, I, I think we can hit on both points. So like, you know, if you want to, if you want to speak to uh, some of the thoughts on portfolio analysis, that, that'd be fine. But uh, also in terms of like, like single game production plan, as far as, I, I don't know if, if you are, or if you were to look at the production plan for a game, what do you think would be best practice in terms of how you would do that planning and in terms of the roadmap, different milestones, things of that, that nature. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I'm not a producer and actually okay. like <laughs> I've, I've gotten into multiple situations where like people assume that I'm a producer, okay. absolutely not my skill set. I'm okay. terrible at being a producer or project okay. manager. Um, so from my like from my outside perspective, typically as a PM, I'm dealing with much more like milestone delivery and saying these are our goals. This is what the entire team needs to be focused on over this next milestone, okay. which is really typically a, a a function of what we talked about before, breaking down the theses, figuring out what our key risks are that we're trying to prototype or build against um, within that, and those include risks of production and content delivery, right? Is like, especially for live services, okay. even during pre-production phases, you're already talking about, okay, this is the live cadence that we want to be hitting with our with our beat strategy, with our live plan strategy. Um, can we actually feasibly build a pipeline to produce that amount of content that quickly? And um, that, that can go all the way down to, okay, so if we're building a match three game, can we produce levels that quickly? Right? Was it, was, what are all the tooling that we need to actually do to build that? Um, within a mechanic or a level structure, can we remix that content very, very effectively? And these can be milestone goals that the, the, the goal or that the team looks at as goals and is measured against each time we, we hit those dates. Right. Yeah. And maybe like to your earlier point about different types of roles in terms of producers and PMs, uh, maybe this is one area of difference from my own experience is that, you know, at, at my company, we actually do have, we're, we're more PM oriented. And so like PMs do interface directly with engineering and are responsible for PNL, are responsible for the roadmap and, and milestones for our game. 
But maybe one, I, I think one of the the biggest differences I would say, and, and maybe I should ask this of you, Adam, since you are also working on the HD side, is that in my experience, a lot of like systems-oriented game teams or game teams that come from the mobile or free-to-play side are different than some of these guys that are, let's say, ex-Blizzard, ex-Riot, and with games that are more gameplay-oriented in the sense that from a planning per- perspective for production, like I-, I would say the majority of game teams usually have a full production plan, meaning pre-pro, alpha, beta, soft, hard, something along those lines. But for like, if you're coming from one of these companies like Blizzard, like Riot on the HD side, then you might actually stop at, let's, you have some, some version of pre-production, whatever that is, whether it's concept or whatever, and you'll have something more like vertical slice and you stop there in terms of planning. And the rationale behind that is that, you know, you're trying to quote unquote, find the fun, right? You're, you're kind of trying to make something new and the amount of time it'll take is unknown. And the, and what will actually come out of that is unknown so that you don't do your, your full production planning until you finish that vertical slice aspect of production. But Adam, do you have thoughts on this? And by the way, I actually believe, I personally, one, I don't have the, the reputational um, credibility to just stop at the vertical slice like some other you know folks do, but I also like a full production plan for other reasons which we can go into. But what, what are your thoughts on that, Adam? Um, so I can't really speak to, to working with Blizzard or Riot folks um, if we're just throwing all of them under the bus during this video. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> as but much as by, the, by the way, by the way, very nice people. Yeah. By the way, that could I have never worked in a company that I have a blank check yeah. for production. They they I'd love to work for one of them. Well, yeah. So let me be clear. That I'm not throwing I'm I'm not throwing shade on them. I actually think that to some degree that's a superior approach. Right. But I, I guess what I'm asking is more the question from a planning perspective, how do you think about that? Um so typically during say the pre-production phase, going into yeah. production. The whole one of the key purposes of pre-production is to be able to fully understand our production so that when we get to there, we're not getting into a situation that that production keeps getting extended. Right. The ideal is that pre-production is building up a very, very detailed view of, of exactly all the content that's needed. But of course, the purpose of pre-production is also to front load as much of the risk as you can. So that by the time you're exiting pre-production, you are now ready to hit the ground running into production and you have a very, very clear roadmap of how long it will take you to build it. So the vertical slice point um, typically will fall around that pre-production and production range. But I've found that there's the ideal, which is the end of prototyping. You reach a vertical slice, it fully proves all of your risks, and then you start on building up all the systems necessary to build up the content as fast as possible. But those two things can't run, say, next to each other, like like stepwise. They have to be run in parallel. Otherwise, you get into these huge, long projects, right? Uh, where you almost have to like sometimes like reset technology uh, when that, that step changes. And that's not really healthy. 
um, versus I think what's better is you build up the sandbox of tools during that pre-production phase in order to enable you to um, correct your key risks and to, to validate your key risks. And then by the point of the end of pre-production, you have that vertical slice. You say, this is the, you know, this proves our key risk. This, this is a fun section of the game. And here's the visibility that we have into the full production so that you have both. Um, because I think before that point, you are making guesses about your production timeline. And I think that's still valid because you need to have a gut check. If I'm making Genshin Impact right now, I'm pretty sure I'm going to use the comp of it's probably going to cost $100 million in dev costs for us to get there, if not more, because we don't have Honkai Impact to you know leverage and build upon. Um, so yeah, I'm going to use top-down comps up until the point that I can actually look at my real production, look at the tools that we built, and then do proper estimation. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, like, so for example, like the way that I think about it is that it's just two different schools of thought or two, two different schools with, I, I guess, advantages and disadvantage against each, right? So, you know, Brett and I talked about before the story of um, Plants vs. Zombies. And again, you know, very open-ended. The, these two guys just started iterating. They just kept iterating, iterating, iterating. And then they had a cool product. And then you can look at successes in the market, whether it's Hearthstone or whether it's Valorant. And those guys did an incredible job of making incredible products over time. And you know, I don't know the the specific detail, but coming from Blizzard, coming from Riot, my assumption is that's how they probably oriented the design of production. And the advantage there is that because you know, you kind of don't know how long it will take to like, and, and some models may fail in terms of a gameplay concept that you're working on. So I, I can see the advantage to that, but I would say that the other way to do it, which is again, just based upon my own experience is, you know, no, nobody's going to write me a blank check. <laughs> so, so we do have to come from more of a perspective of having a full production plan. But I would say the one thing I like about having a full production plan, even though there may be some, you know, what, what I call like nonlinear aspects to like some parts of the game, which we can't fully predict, is that I think it creates pressure. Meaning when I think about some of the key leaders who I have a lot of respect for, guys like Elon Musk, guys like Steve Jobs, one of the things that they have done is they set very aggressive targets for their team. But there's there's a date, there's a time, there's like a specific outcome expected. And I think that by having that, by having the full production plan, it creates a pressure. And that pressure, I think, forces key decisions to be made. It forces, it forces and stimulates innovation. And there's a quote, and, and I'll read it to you here, but there, there's an old movie called The Third Man from Orson Welles. And this, this quote reads as follows. In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So, so my own philosophy on this, and the, the reason why I orient towards having the full plan for production is really because you know I do believe in conflict, pressure, lack of resources, forcing decisions, forcing innovation, making people 
do things they're not comfortable with, pushing them to then create a better outcome. I don't know. Just the dictator, Joe. Wow. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> okay, no work life yeah, balance. <laughs> Right, like just get found- it done by this date, otherwise Joe's gonna come and eat you. All right, <laughs> the- seriously. Uh, like, yeah, um, I'm gonna go ahead and disagree on on okay. a lot of that. Um, all right, first of all, on the first point, in terms of whether or not you want to do what you're sort of talking about with is the iterative process versus the sort of pre-plan set plan. I mean, I I think what you guys are kind of alluding to is the cost of change, right? Like with the plants and zombies example, it was two guys, right? So the cost to change the whole game is what? Minimal, right? You have two guys that scrap it, delete, go start again, right? If you have a team like working on Hearthstone and you decide you want to create a plants versus zombies versus a, a CCG or something, that's a massive cost of change, right? So the pre planning is more important with a larger cost of change that's not to say that you can't change it because if the change is relatively massive in value versus the cost of the change you're going to want to do it regardless how big or whatever the team is but that iterative approach is is much easier when you have smaller teams uh, more control over decision making and less cost whereas if you have a massive team it's the opposite. So that's my that's my first point. In terms of the second point, the pressure thing, I'm going to go completely against that. I am not a deadlines guy at all. Like we have no deadlines at my company and I couldn't stand them in gaming as well. And the reason is is because they are so arbitrary and inaccurate and then people so much is held to these completely arbitrary, very inaccurate estimations on how long something should take to be made right you have no idea how long your game is going to take to make or how long this bold beat is going to take or what's going to happen and then you go okay this needs to be done in 90 days and then all of a sudden it isn't done in 90 days and you're yelling at your team because it isn't done when who knows if it should have been a year or 30 days or two days or five years there's really it's so inaccurate and so in my company it's there's an understanding, and this is how I would run a gaming team too, there's an understanding that you're going to push as hard as you can to get it done in a certain time period. And if we want to hit a quality bar that's really high, we're going to be unsure of when we're going to land. Now, I think you can do a range, right? Like you're not going to just go, I think your point is you don't want to just have them build stuff for years and years and years. But I think you want to bake in this like inaccuracy of your estimation ability. Yeah. And be like, okay, we're going to go about a month Give or you know, give or take two weeks, and try to get to that point, and then reassess. Um, and I don't know about. I feel like that quote about Switzerland. I, there's a, <laughs> again, that's that's throwing shade. That's throwing Switzerland under the bus, JK. So that's number three on the podcast because there's a lot of awesome stuff besides the cuckoo clock. I'm not like I have no association with Switzerland, but I know there's a lot of great stuff that came out of that country, other than the cuckoo clock. And I don't know if the fact that there was a dictatorship in Italy, that that's causation <laughs> of great right. artists. Okay? And, and by the way, let, let me clear. That could just be like just right. random. Okay. But so <laughs> the point is, is I, I, I disagree with that completely. Right. I don't run my, well, my company. And, yeah, I, I, and I err on the side of running it much more. But it's just because it's so inaccurate. And then you're then it's just so inaccurate to be able to predict these things. It's, I mean, everyone's been there. Why isn't this done today? Well, you know, it's. 
Who knows? It's supposed yeah. to take a day. Because you told me to change the whole spec. No, no, no. But, but let's... Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just told me to do a week's worth of work in a day. That's why. <laughs> okay, so... Jerk. You know what I mean? Like, that's why, dictator JK. Okay, so let, let me... I'm building the let, cuckoo clock here. I'm building the 16th chapel. All right, you know what I mean? If I, if I can How speak. long did that take? <laughs> all right, so... No, you can't speak. No, you so, can't speak. So, first of all... Like, if you look at Tesla, Tesla is notorious for missing their deadlines, right? So I think not, that... So it's not like you, you can't you okay. can't say, hey, you know, uh, everyone's going to get fired for missing this deadline. I think that's not the point. The point isn't to yell and scream at people, but the point is to, like, have a, have a, target, a, a target that is aggressive, that is set for the team to try to figure out and try to achieve. Now, I'm not saying when you miss the how target... How do you even know? How do you even know if it's aggressive? How do you even know it's aggressive? It could be a total slot. I mean, I hated that. You know, when I was at companies too, they'd be like, well, yeah. we're going to make 1% this quarter. How do you know that's aggressive? Well, I think it's All important of a sudden you to make have... 10%. Yeah, so I think it's important to have a goal. Like, So, so one it's... of the other things that, that Elon Musk states is like, he has this famous quote where he says, if you give yourself three months to clean your house... It'll take you three months to clean your house. But if you give yourself three hours to clean your house, then the house will be clean in three hours. And so uh, I think the point is that is not so much. <laughs> uh, not my house, dude. No way. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> three hours clean but, of those two situations. Uh, and, and no way would my house be clean in three hours. <laughs> but the, the, and the also point, like three months. <laughs> Sure, but I, I think the, the, I, 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 yeah. I understand. I understand. Yeah. You know what? Like, you know what? You Elon, Musk, Elon Musk can shove it. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead. He's not here. He's not here. Okay, so I don't really care about Elon Musk's opinion. I care about your opinion about what you do. Okay, I honestly don't believe half these guys who get on podcasts and make up this stuff. I work 80 hours a week. I work, you know, 80 hours a day. It's like, dude, come on, man. Like you're dating these models and stuff. You're not working. I mean, I, I would be careful. Let's let's not. Let's let's well, talk about JK. What does JK believe? What does so JK do? I, I believe I, it's important to have reasonable but aggressive targets. Now, I think it's important to have something that a team is orienting around and it's a clearly defined target that everybody that everybody understands, right? So and I do think that pressure does help create innovation. It forces decisions and all that stuff is good. There are, you know, it in in the venture startup world, there are numerous examples of companies that actually died, not because of lack of resource, but because of too much resource. So from that perspective, I that's the philosophy that I adhere to. And again, you know, I mean, we don't all have to agree here, but that for me, I believe that's that's the better approach for, for, for me. Um, I think like I agree with you in 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 part, JK. Yeah. And I think if I put it in the context of live in the ideal situation in live and, and Brett, like your company has a cadence of releasing of reports, right? But you do have deadlines, even though you don't want them of your clients are expecting a report every X weeks, right? And they have to deliver those and those have to be up to quality. And I think that's typically when the best motivation happens is when you have a deadline, when you say, this is the cadence, we are updating the game every two weeks, right? We want to have the best quality for players as possible. And you motivate your team around, this is the time you 
get to judge the quality, right? And there's goals and there's KPIs. And I've, I, I think consistently that's been the most motivational situation. So try to replicate that during your production as well, right? Is you have those set cadences of releases and there's goals and key risks that you're trying to, to go against. Um, but of course, like when you get to that point and you realize, okay, the game's not going to work. I would not be so draconian to say, let's just push this thing out. Cause I really hate those productions of somebody arbitrarily set a date two years ago. Right. And we're looking at the game and saying, this is not tracking against our key risks. There has to be some flexibility to say, okay, we need to change course. We need to adjust this in order to hit those dates. Yeah. And to the point, Brett, you well, made a, you about, bring up, you bring well, up a just, good... just one sec, one sec. So I, I just well, I, one point. I want to talk to Adam's point there. <laughs> All right, go for yeah. it. Perfect. I mean, he got up a great, he, you brought up a, a great point, which is a clarification on what I was saying, which is if it's something that you have knowledge of how long it takes to make, right? Like our reports go out every month. So we have very good knowledge of the production process and the time it takes. Then you can be JK level of intensity on the deadlines. If it's something like making a new game that you've only done once or five times in the last six years, and you decide to put a deadline on it, like you do something that you know you know very well. For example, our our uh, expansion products have no deadlines, but our reports have very specific deadlines, right? So there's different systems for different type of products that you're de developing is, is my point. So I think it's a good clarification. Yeah, but one advantage, even for something that you're not sure about in terms of setting a deadline is actually the retrospective against why you missed, right? And so like, let's say, you set a deadline for two months from now. Then after that two months, I think it's it's actually a good exercise to then have a retrospective with the team that said, okay, we thought this we could make this in two months. What were the assumptions going in that we that we felt we could make it? And what happened? Why did we not make it? And so having that specific deadline and then trying to think more critically about what went into that deadline, I think is a good practice that then builds better understanding, more depth of understanding of what what you're actually doing and areas that you could potentially improve upon or not. And then we'll also improve future predictions as you do a similar exercise in the future. All right. So we hit early. We hit production. I so disagree still. <laughs> All right. Let, let's go into live ops. Something, Brett, I know you yeah. you have a how lot of experience. How long are we going to go on this, dude? What? <laughs> yeah, how long are we well, going to go on this, by the way? We uh, went like a whole hour already. We hit the hour mark. What time well, is it there, Adam? We're, we're, we're deep. We're philosophers. Yeah. We're, we're philosophers, Brett. We'll, well, it's we'll 5 go. It's 5.30 on Friday for Adam here. I think we should do that. I got, I, got a, I got a beer over here. It's fine. <laughs> oh, <All> you right. do? <laughs> Only water here. Okay. We got the beer All right. pass. All right. For live ops, um, talking about planning, uh, both in terms of whether it's like the development plan or content cadence or anything else, you know, obviously Zynga is known for planning based upon beats, things like that. But can you guys talk about what you think are best practices in terms of planning for development for content in live ops? And Adam, as our guest, again to you. Yeah, so um, I think we'll, we'll hand wave over saying like, okay, we've built up a live plan based on competitive intelligence and said, okay, this is when our big beats come, this is when our quality of life improvements come, this is the type of content that we're releasing, et cetera. 
Um, so typically when I'm thinking about um, uh, live, um, uh, sorry, a live production planning. Um, so you have a set of content that you are say on the hook for. You're saying, okay, we need to produce for say a match three game. We need to produce so many levels in order to feed um, our player engagement in order to keep that up. Um, we need a certain quality cadence of that. So this 20 levels needs to make sure that it has X number of uh, say level modifiers or level goals to make sure there's enough novelty introduced in each one of these content packs. We have events that we're producing. All of this kind of fits into a bucket of, I would say like baseline content requirements for that team. Yeah. And of course, the quality level of that goes up and down and, and the team should always be retrospecting on, on, on making sure that that is as focused as possible on the highest value and creating the biggest uplift um, in each one of those content drops. But then there's a whole other section of your team, which is more flexible, which is then saying, okay, so what are we doing on top of that? What types of features do we need to develop? What is our big beat strategy for some new big thing we're launching? Um, what types of new events should we be delivering to our event library to be feeding into our live operations? What new technology should we be adding to our, say, offer system? All of this stuff has to be prioritized against each other. So all of this feeds into some version of a revenue model. So we all love Excel in this conversation, so that's good. Um, but eventually, a team from pre-launch has a revenue model that they've built up, which is fairly basic. They go live, they start predicting against that revenue model, they might adjust it based on the play patterns that they see from real segments and players and adjust that. Um, and then they get better and better and better at predicting what happens, right? They Everybody makes a bet and says, this will increase this by this much, this KPI by this much, and then they see what happens and they get better and better at predicting. And of course you give that team, you know, at least a year of making bad bets because they're going to make bad bets. I think that the, always what happens in something like a soft launch, right? Everyone's like, oh, we're adding this killer new feature. Day seven is going to double. We're going to be top top 10 next year, right? And it doesn't happen, right? And then they go back and swing and they swing and they swing. Um, but then they get better and better at KPIs. So you have that revenue model. You have a better understanding of your segments. That then feeds into your overall expected outcome mapping. And you can prioritize based on that. So here's your revenue impact. Here's a crude estimation of your costs. That maps out and you say, where does this fit? That's the basics. Okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah. And Mr. Zynga Poker, what's the, what's the best practice for live ops for you? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think I'm just going to go the short answer on this, but I, okay. I think that operations in gaming is a huge opportunity that I don't think is given enough attention. I, I think it has, you can see games be successful because they have better operations. And we see that with our data through, for example, slot machine output, right? Like they just have the ability to produce more slot machines in a shorter amount of time. Now there's a quality variable to that, but it's, I think it's just something overlooked and gaming is, as you've mentioned, JK, very, can be a very complicated system, a lot of batch design. And I think yeah. that if I was building a game, which I, I, I sometimes debate if I want to, I would definitely spend a lot more time. If I was in a large company, I would, I would hire someone who's specifically dedicated to operations and not somebody who is just a 
producer, but someone who is actually a MBA level operations engineer to look at how to improve the operations. That's that's kind of what I'll stop at. Okay. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah, because there's some very basic things that people don't don't adopt that are that are incredibly valuable in terms of operations. I've read some beginner operations books, Adam, some uh, some more advanced ones, but there's things in operations that people don't do, like having not a full utilized system. It's a perfect example, right? Whenever I was at game teams and with game teams, God forbid you have anybody who's not working right? Oh, we have a dev over here. He's not working. Can we fill him with someone? And that is not a, an optimized operation system. An optimized operation system has buffer in their system. Just like a highway has empty spaces on it. That's the best, most productive driving system, right? And that's just a good example of if you have someone on board who understands these concepts of operations, you'll, you'll benefit a lot from, particularly with larger live game teams. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, I agree not, with both of you not guys. Not so much with... Yeah, and to your point, Brett, that the right. shift in focus, especially live shifts, orients more around operational efficiency and, and that that sort of thing. The only other nuance I would add is that I kind of separate once like hard launch into kind of two phases. The first is like the initial hard launch phase, and then more of the steady state live cadence part. And the, the difference for me is that in that, let's say the initial, and it could be anywhere from, let's say, two to six months, depending on the game and depending on the nuances of the game, kind of what we're trying to do. So, so my philosophy on this is that what you're trying to do as you shift into hard is in soft, you have a number of assumptions and models around different things, and you're trying to actually prove out unitary economics on your player. In soft, and so that and that's why you know at least I do, and then I really orient around what does that ARPU curve looks like look like in soft, and what can it look like at scale? And you're building different kinds of models around your game, but when you get into hard launch, now this shift there's a shift from unitary economics to project economics, and then it's for me it's all about how do I make this game break even and profitable? So then all you you have different models around the economy around monetization, around your player behavior, around your content model and the content cadence, and then around marketing scale. And so that initial period would be, okay, how does the game scale? How, you know, will this game break even? And then how far can we push it? It is my economy depth model that I haven't, haven't soft as I scale up players. Does that actually prove out, you know, the, the monetization, um, Assumptions I made in terms of conversion, in terms of the number of free versus minnows, dolphins, whales, whatever, or however you do it. I, I, don't, I don't use that model, but that could be one. Uh, the content cadence and model, all that stuff. Does Can you prove that out to, and, and are those models accurate or not? And then once you get to your break-even profitability status and you've kind of confirmed those models, then I would shift into this more, okay, all right, guys, now we can not necessarily relax. But now we can move into a much more steady state operation and rhythm around, you know, a beats-based model, um, having a, a fairly regular cadence around expected outcomes every month or whenever, and then just kind of driving the model from exactly how you guys had described. But um, I don't know. Well, 
I, I would slightly disagree with that. Okay. I would say that the best model is to actually, if a, if you're in a successful live game, to incorporate both. I would think okay. of it more of like the military where you would have a Navy SEALs team that was going to be investing in higher beta ideas. I think that you do not want to just rely on a, what I think you call it like an operations model where you're just, you know, plugging out 1%, 5.5% features you want a team that does that and i think that's not to throw any shade but i think that's the marine corps uh in in terms of the military i don't know the military that way well but um you know they're much more of very operationalized and i think that was what you would do with your live ops team or your content cadence team but you'd still want to have like a team that's going to yeah. be building the really new cool content or the really new cool live ops or whatever and they're going to be taking those high beta bets so I think it would be a hybrid approach and each team would yeah. have different type of structures based on what you're trying to achieve with them. Yeah, and I would disagree with that. And so, for example, let's say you're t taking a typical Zynga structure where let's say you've got you know, your regular content cadence and you might have a, a single yearly bold beat. How do you guys think about coming up with that or planning for that or the difference, if you would call that a second team, Brett? Uh, how they would think about planning for that. Well, I would adopt something similar to what they talk about with Supercell, right? The team would have a lot more autonomy. They would have a lot more ownership over it. They wouldn't have to deal with the bureaucracy that was sort of applied to the other arms of the business. They would be off on their own and they would be allowed to build something sort of like whatever they want. Because I think once you you integrate them into sort of the other system you water it down you make it be too much too collaborative you you build a camel instead of a horse right and so i, I think that's what i would do all right adam you what do you agree. think and it, it and just, has to be on a separate oh, go ahead yeah it, it has to be on a separate track it has to be its own pod but of course as we talked about it before in terms of planning that almost becomes a production right so now again there's still time limits there. There's still, you need to prove out key risks in that bold beat by X date. That could involve launching smaller features within the game itself and tacking into that release cadence to then see those impacts or launch a survey or something like this to be able to start backing up your assumptions going into it. So I see that as a mini game production um, as a live content beat, right? To then prove out your risks, get that thing out. All right. And just to kind of yeah, and I think one 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 big one comment on that though, I think one big mistake with that type of team that teams make is that they build the team and then they go, okay, make this huge, uh, you know, innovative thing, right? Take a year, and when you look at innovative companies and innovative teams and whatever, I mean, they generally have built a rapport, a skill set, a practice together before they build that thing that's super awesome. And I think that you're sort of setting teams up for failure if you just form them and then you set them off. I think that what I would do is I would form the team and then I would have them build a series of small innovations and get their sort of bearing and prove some of the capabilities, get out some of the kinks, figure out, create that chemistry. And then once they had done that, I would expand the investment, right? I would go from a month investment to two months investments to three months investments to four. And too often I see them like break off and go, okay, here, have a six month investment. Like that's a huge risk for a company. It's a huge risk for the individuals. Sometimes it can give a false negative in a way where they're like, oh, that didn't work. You know, it's like, well, did it not work because of this or because it just sort of they didn't have their chemistry yet, you know? So I, I would also sort of like create this plan for the team to to then 
eventually work their way up to make a big bowl beef. All right. And just to wrap up the conversation here, any other ideas in terms of how you would build in more innovation, higher risk ideas into, into a game, even while live? I think the best thing building on Brett's previous point is events. You have a structure where you can be continually delivering novelty to your game in a time limited manner. So if you mess it up, it's only an event. It's time limited. So you use that as your track of, okay, this team forms, they build that event, they see what happens, and then they they build on that event over time. That's the great thing about um, live services and live operations is um, you can build out these pods. Um, they can work in parallel and you have event structures where you can test these things out and then build up towards something bigger and bolder. Um, I think that's the smartest and safest way to do it. Um, but of course, still, sometimes it's important um, to do those big beats on a bold idea. Um, and I think that's still absolutely fine. I'd rather be doing big, bold beats in a live service than greenlighting a whole new game um, based on that. And I think it's just the risk level is significantly lower. Right. All right, guys. I, I think one oh, of the... Go ahead. Well, I just, well, I think one of the keys on that, I just want to, sorry, I'm getting a lot of thoughts here, but I think about this stuff all the time, is you have to create a system that you are going to move forward on an idea that you as the boss or manager does not think is going to work. Because contrarian, high innovative ideas are generally ideas that not a lot of people are going to agree with. And we've talked about this before. So going and creating this bold beat and then go, yeah, we all think this is a great idea. You've already set yourself up for not probably having an innovative idea. So you have to figure out how internally you're going to green light something as a boss, as a manager that you're like, I don't believe this is going to work. But Adam, who's the lead designer is super passionate about it. So we're going to, we're going to allow him to de-risk it and test his theory. And he's going to allow to prove it to everyone else that it's an awesome idea. And that's really hard to do in larger organizations, much easier in small organizations. So you have to somehow figure out a way to overcome that. But ultimately the decision is not being made by, you know, everybody on the team, everybody can have a, a different opinion, but ultimately the GM has to be able to make a, make a call of this lead designer is passionate about it. They've brought together, they've, they've proved out, you know, portions of their key risks enough that I'm going to be like, yep, there's your budget. And is ahead, the GM the right person to make That's that call? <laughs> Ideally. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I mean, because GM can back position. an idea that they don't believe in, right? Yeah. As long as if it's proved out. All right. You know, another I, topic for hate, another you time. Just hate GMs too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. MBA, you yeah. got that last, that last one in there, dude. Number four. <laughs> All GMs, <laughs> all NBA, Switzerland, yeah, Blizzard, I can't, Riot, Blizzard. Completely no, Blizzard, dude, Riot. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Zinga, Blizzard and Riot. What are you Zinga, guys talking maybe. about? Singa, it was six. Yeah, yeah I, I, I believe more in areas of responsibility. But anyway, all right, guys, thanks for tuning in this far. Very long discussion here today. Thank you, Adam, for joining us. Please join us again. And I know a lot of you guys have specific uh, requests for different PM topics. Please keep those coming. We will absolutely hit on some of those at some point in the future. So until next week, catch y'all later. Goodbye from Philosophy Friday. Bye.